Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Don't Call Us, We'll Call You, the podcast all about audition mishaps and disasters. Those moments when a casting didn't quite go to plan, something ruined your chance and it stressed you out afterwards. We are here to remind you it's okay for disasters to happen. It's not as big of a deal as you make out when it goes wrong, and you are certainly not alone. My name is Christopher Bartlett-Walford. I am your host, and each week, a guest from the world of the entertainment industry joins me to delve into our listener audition submission email pile. Those stories that you've sent in to share with us anonymously so that we can tell them to our listeners and we can remind you, you are not alone. It happens to everybody. It's okay, and you can move on whilst emailing your stories into an international podcast. (laughs) This week, my guest is the fantastic Jennifer Ashley Tepper, producer of Be More Chill, Broadway Bounty Hunter and loads more incredible musical theatre shows. She is also creative director at 54 Below in New York. And not only that, she is one of the best Broadway historians that we have. And she's here to celebrate the release of her brand new book, The Untold Stories of Broadway, Volume 4. Which means not only do we get to tell her some incredible stories that you've sent in this week, but Jennifer will bring some fantastic historical Broadway mishaps and disasters and tales to the table too. It's an episode that I have been looking forward to bring you for a very, very long time. We had a fantastic fantastic hour on zoom the other day all the way from new york to london (laughs) it's such a wonderful episode if this is your first time listening to us then please make sure you say hello we are at don't call us pod on twitter and instagram and tiktok and you can say hello via emails don't call us pod at gmail.com where you can send your stories of your auditions to us completely anonymously So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. If you're listening, grab yourself a cuppa. This is a proper theatre geek out episode. So you are going to love it. So enjoy the show with Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Normally I start the show by asking what what auditions mean to them, how people deal with them. So it's obviously very different with you. Is there anything that springs to mind when you know it's when when you're maybe when you're approaching that end goal of starting to cast a show, which obviously to our side of things is just the beginning of making a show. How do you feel when you get to that point? Do you feel like oh, we're, we're halfway there? Do you feel right now the hard work starts? Obviously, the hard work's been going on for a long time. What What is the producer's emotion at that point? You know, I had a pretty unique audition experience in 2019 because as a producer, I was in auditions for Be More Chill for Broadway, um, for Broadway Bounty Hunter, for Off-Broadway, and for Love and Hate Nation Out of Town, all in one year, all involving um, Joe Iconis, who I collaborate with a lot and who's like my close friend and frequent collaborator and um, the family of artists we work with regularly. And then also casting all these new people and having auditions where um, we were like, who's going to join this show family or that show family? So kind of to answer your question, it's different with each project. But I found that when you're in auditions, it really is the moment where it makes something feel real that you've been working on for years. And it's the moment where you say, oh, my God, like we finally have an opportunity to actually do the show. Like, who do we bring on to this team? And like what um, kinds of conversations you have with the creative team during the casting process can be really informative. And it just is like a moment where it all starts to feel a lot more real. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of my one of my audition feelings as a producer. (laughs) The other is, uh oh. (laughs) <laughs> it's all going to happen now. We've actually got to do a show. <laughs> yes, some of that. <laughs> Usually just pure pure adrenaline drives me through that. 
<laughs> are there any uh, are there any style of auditions that you prefer to be in the room for? Are you do you enjoy sitting in on a dance call or are you more of a material girl? <laughs> Not material girl, that sounds wrong. No, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um you know, I I love being in the room for um when actors come in with their own songs and also when actors come in with material from the show and maybe slightly less dance calls only because I'm less qualified to, um, you know, judge them in any way. Oh, you but... and me both. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, what's funny is like every year I go back and judge Florida thespians where I competed as a high schooler. I'm doing it virtually this year. And that's kind of like a junior version of auditions. You know, like I sit in the group musical room all day and, you know, give feedback to students doing it. So auditions that, you know, Telsey or wherever in New York are kind of a grown up version of that. That. but also being a historian who you know has given, done many interviews and like learned a lot about historic auditions um it just you know being in the audition room makes you feel like you're part of like a continuum of people putting on shows and making stuff happen it's really a cool feeling i love i mean i love it auditions are a chance to meet new people so whenever i was your side of the panel it was always just the best because it's the best part of any casting job is when you get to actually see the people obviously now with it being a bit more digital is you miss that connection even though you're seeing people on a screen or you might meet them on zoom that personal yeah. that personal kind of click and moment isn't there anymore and it's uh or at least it, it seems that way absolutely and you know like as someone who like wears a lot of hats i was constantly in the audition room in you know 2019 to give that example going like oh this person isn't right for be more chill but they i should hire them to do a 54 below show or oh this person isn't right for bowie bounty hunter we should save them for love and hate nation and call them in so just like to have the opportunity to have multiple projects going on and go oh my god you know that person was incredible they don't fit this exact job people don't ever realize um this happened constantly at our um like open call and epa where the casting audition like the people running casting and myself we're putting aside tons of people for other projects yeah i see see listeners we've been saying it for so long <laughs> and there it is right from the producer's mouth it's not just about the job that you go in for it's just oh yeah the more people that really get that in their heads because it is just true you never know what the next person uh, what you're going to be called in for that person again what they're working on next and totally. it's you know not that you should go in thinking that you should always go in for the job. <laughs> always go in for the one you called in for. Oh, it's so good to actually hear it from a producer. We're not yeah. lying. You see, we're not, li <laughs> we're not filming. <laughs> no, it's true. So anyone who's listening to the show for the first time, every story that I read, Jen, is sent in by someone who listens to the show or has found us on social media and our response uh, and has responded rather with our call out for stories. So these all happened. They've all been anonymized where necessary. So nobody will be <laughs> hang out to dry. Oh, dear. Now, the first one's about nerves. So we get a lot of stories in about nerves. And it's a very simple one. But one that I'm, sh well, hopefully not many people have <laughs> connected with. Oh, here we go. She says, when I went for a call for my favorite musical, all did not go to plan. It started by being one of those roles that people tell you that you need to play in your career. But it was also not just my favourite, but a very specific style of musical that many people find problematic. But somehow I seemed to excel in that composer's work. So I was pumped for this. It was a big show, great venue, awesome director. Not going to make a bazillion dollars, but it would take my career to the next level if I got good write-ups. I was nervous. I'd had so many peers in theatre tell me that this role was in the bag, I was really built up. 
I know the team knew of me as I know several MDs had been in touch with them to tell them my suitability for the role. I know it was meant to be supportive and of course it was welcome, but well, it ladled on the pressure. I was terrified. I grabbed a coffee on my way to the studios, downed it and felt that caffeine and sugar buzz lift my nerves away. I was ready. I turned up, went in when I was called and had a quick chat with the panel and the MD. I presented my material and the pianist started. I missed the entrance. This wasn't me. He started again. I got the note wrong this time. Instant panic started coursing through my veins. My nerves returned and I could feel it in my stomach. I started shaking. The panel were looking at me with raised eyebrows. I knew, knew this wasn't how I normally was. But you try telling that to a panel that you're desperate to work for. Take a second, the pianist said. The panel grumbled something in my direction and I went one more time. Although this time, what came out of my mouth wasn't the note or wasn't on time or anything to do with the song, but an entire stomach's worth of coffee. I vomited so much it landed with a horrid splash on the studio floor and ran all the way to the feet of the panel, who, rightly so, were absolutely furious. <laughs> oh, dear, you shouldn't laugh. I ran out of that room so fast and I never looked back. Obviously, no callback for that role, but a few years later, the same audition pianist was playing for an open call I was at, and when I saw him at the piano, he whispered to me that he'd hoped I'd settled my stomach by then. What a disaster. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> Jen's face oh god. throughout that was just tense. <laughs> you know, my first instinct, that poor person, but also I was like, did they film these? Because if that was on tape, like, you know how sometimes even oh in a live god. audition, they'll tape oh it. My god, like, exactly. oh my god, send that into America's Funniest Home Video. <laughs> <and> like... <laughs> this is the thing, right? We've said this before. Somewhere there are tapes of so many of these and you've gone back to the, the production office or whatever and some intern or some production assistant has had to watch them all just to yeah. make sure they all recorded and has watched it and gone, what the hell happened there? See, this is where GDPR comes in. We, do, we can't keep tapes and things for very long over here anymore, <laughs> so it's a bonus. Yeah, oh. But, oh my gosh, my heart goes out to actors because like the nerves when you want a job that badly, like I, of course, I would throw up. Like, I mean, <laughs> oh man. Um, I actually, this like reminded me of something, which is like, it's not a vomit story, but I do have a story that I love from my upcoming book that nobody's heard yet that has to do with nerves that I can <gasps> share. That's like a little story. See, this is great. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know Jen's work, tell us about the books and the series, because I love them and I'm so pleased that you're doing another one. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So um, I have this book series called The Untold Stories of Broadway. There are three volumes that have been published. And the fourth volume is going to be published the second week of March to mark the anniversary of the Broadway shutdown, celebrating everything that makes theater essential in these books during a time when theater's on pause. And the books, um, you know, they tell stories of Broadway history through the individual theaters. So each chapter is a different Broadway theater. And I've interviewed about 300 theater professionals from actors to producers to stagehands and door people and musicians, everybody um, who works in the theater about their experiences doing shows at that theater but the stories are all connected through my own research and discoveries and through like the physical spaces so you might be reading about the imperial theater and hear about you know an audition for the original pippin that took place on the imperial stage and then you're also hearing about you know opening night of edwin drood on the same stage in the same spot so it's kind of like the physical history that connects us um and actually the story that you made me think of that i was like oh my god can i grab this it's short but um our bender jay robinson who's an awesome awesome actor who i got to interview 
told me this story about the revival of Les Mis that was at the Imperial in 2014. And um, listeners, you're going to be the first to hear it because nobody's heard this yet because the <laughs> book is about to come out. Um, but this is from our bender, Jay Robinson. I was in The Lion King on Broadway when I got a call to audition for Enhoras in the Les Mis revival. I had a callback for that role, and then they asked if I would come in for Marius. That's when I got really excited. I was being asked to do a role that I traditionally wouldn't be considered for. I worked very hard and then had the worst audition of my life. This, see, this is what reminded oh, me. No. Universal <laughs> audition stories. Um, I couldn't match my pitch. I couldn't remember the notes. It was just a total disaster. I left the audition, went back to my dressing room at Lion King and cried and cried. Then I called my agent and asked if there was any way I could go back in for another audition. I didn't expect to change the, their minds, but I just wanted the team to know what I was capable of doing with the material. She called casting and sure enough, they said that they had already made a decision. They weren't going to change their mind, but that if I came back in, they would try to make time to see me again. A week later, they called and offered me the show. I hadn't even gone back in yet. They said, if you're that dedicated about how well you audition, then we really want to work with you oh that's fantastic i'm making a crying face because it's like that's the, when nerves go right oh. or just like you know that's when nerves go right that story warms my heart <laughs> i mean you want that's 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 the ending that you want for starters if you balls up an audition and, and they still offer you the job tick but at the same time i've never heard it again so do i trust it i'm not sure i've never heard it before <laughs> when you asked me to be a guest on the podcast i was like oh what are the audition stories in the fourth book and i was trying to remind myself of them and a lot of them are like twisty turny with good endings um not to say there aren't plenty of you know for every 99 you know auditions that you don't get you get one that you do get mm. but um there are a lot of stories of like if i had an audition for this i wouldn't have been seen for that and that was the show that made my career so um there's a lot of silver lining stories about auditions this is why i love the series because it's one of those to start with if you are a theater nerd in any way like so many of us are this is absolutely these all these books should be on your bookshelf and on your coffee table and in the toilet for you to read them whenever you have five <laughs> minutes because they are brilliant and the, the effort and the dedication that jen puts into the research is just so thorough and it's just brilliant so if you are any way a theater fan that's why we've got her on the show today because it's just such a good match. <laughs> it's such a good match. But I love those stories. This is why I make the podcast. I love the stories that do twist and turn. And sometimes things happen that you just don't expect out of nowhere. And I would never, ever have expected that person to hear before they called him back in, which is fantastic. <laughs> And again, it shows commitment. Yeah. And if you show that you're a good person, people want to work with you, they will find the right role for you. I love that. I love that. I totally. wasn't expecting it to go that way. What's been one of... <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> What's been one of the most interesting things that you've discovered whilst doing this volume of this book? Um, you know, this volume was special to me because in each uh, volume, I do seven Broadway theaters and one lost Broadway theater, like a theater that's been demolished and is no longer part of our Broadway houses. And so I've done one in each book. And the fourth volume is where I finally got to do the Fallen Five, which are the five Broadway theaters that were demolished to build the Marriott Marquis in 1982. So to get to interview so many people about the Morasco Bijou, the Old Helen Hayes, um, and sadly, the other two theaters um, stopped being Broadway houses in the 30s. So I couldn't interview anyone about them. But I did a lot of research about 
up with them. But to really hear firsthand stories about some of those lost theaters and to kind of put that all together into a bit of a manifesto about what happened in 1982 and why and how it impacted theater history and what it taught us, um, that was like a really special part of this book. But also, you know, I wrote most of volume four in quarantine and during the pandemic. So the book is filled with stories that I might not have um, focused on or might not have thought of a certain way if we weren't going through this moment in history. Um, just a lot of parallels and a lot of like interesting things that I think are really telling for our time. Mm. It's, it is such a weird time to write a book like this as well, because obviously the physical access to the places is a lot more limited than you would normally be, isn't it? And I imagine yes. a lot of them have been done on Zoom and a lot of them have been done on the phone or whatever. So it's, um, it's yeah, it, it, a volume four is different to the other three volumes in the sense that you haven't been able to go there. I, I was watching your Instagram story and, and your Twitter thread about the, the last remaining piece of that theatre yesterday as we record this. And I've had lots of people send it to me when they saw that you were recording tonight. They were like, oh, oh cool. I saw this thread and this is really <laughs> fascinating. I was like, that's why we've invited Jen on the show. Yeah, <laughs> but I know, love that. It's such a hard time for so many reasons, like we all know, but um, there've been like tiny moments of silver linings where like, I don't know that I would have found out about that lost piece of the Ziegfeld and gone there. Like, um, you know, and, and getting to write this and getting to connect with people about like, what makes theater special during this time has been like really very meaningful. Um, I also, there's one other audition story. I don't have to tell at this moment, but we'll see what else you have and how it pings me about <laughs> specific audition stories. There's one other one I was thinking about today that I was like, oh, I have to share this, but this is it. That. I love it. I love it. I love it when guests <laughs> are like, right, I've got so much to tell you. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this person emails in, <laughs> <laughs> again i can imagine that a lot of listeners are going to get this one one audition the director who was doing the casting asked all hopefuls for the same two roles to go into the room together form pairs and do the audition dialogue simultaneously and on a continuous loop there must have been <laughs> there must have been 20 pairs acting out the same scene at the same time at the same volume and on repeat it sounds awful <laughs> Yeah, oh my God. He, he then proceeded to parade through the room and listen in on each of the scenes. I was absolutely mortified, but I did get offered the part. <laughs> <laughs> no surprise, the director turned out to be a nightmare. <laughs> that is the weirdest, weirdest way of casting a pair of roles. That feels like an exercise in just like, can you make someone stay sane during a situation where they should go insane? Like, yeah. You want to work with them because they yeah. can deal with that. It sounds very GCSE drama is what I would say. I think <laughs> <laughs> That's a very strange thing. Is it, What happens if one person reading it is better with the other person? That That's like, oh, it's weird. That's weird. Anyway, <laughs> she yeah, also sends in. Gosh. One casting call for a new musical was clearly marked pop music, no musical theatre. Uh, the age old tale. <laughs> <laughs> On the audition invite and all subsequent communications, we were asked time and again to not bring any MT, but bring legit pop music instead. So for the first time in my career, I left all my musical theatre sheet music at home. I learned two pop songs instead. Needless to say, the casting director did not want to hear them and asked for a musical theatre song instead. I did not get the job. Oh, no. <laughs> Always That's take awful. your rep. Always take all your rep anyway. Just take it anyway. But oh, no. That's, 
it, miscommunications and lack of communication isn't necessarily the problem here because they clearly said, don't bring it. We don't want of it. Course. And then to change their minds. No, oh, I think man. it is good advice, though, to always be prepared with your book, no matter yeah. what, because I've been in situations in the, you know, in the audition room where, you know, and, and this isn't that is not that actor's fault. Like they were told the wrong oh, no. information. Like this is not that. <laughs> but I've been in situations in the casting room where similar to what we were talking about before, um, you know, some direct the director in the room is like, oh, this person could be right for my next show. I want to hear them sing something from, you know, a little jazzy kind of song. Yeah. And then they ask if they, you have that in your book or some other situation like that, where it's just always smart to have your whole book. Yeah. That's why you have it you know even if you've got your rep with your sheet music and you might have an ipad or something in your bag with all your pdfs on it even that is helpful totally. just having that little backup or something even even like if you've got a, a a digital file of all your scan stuff instead of having an ipad you can literally just send it to the pianist a lot of pianists in london have got ipads ready or at least the very least laptops you can at least have it just in case always over well maybe not over repair but just <laughs> expect the unexpected you knew that was <laughs> yeah see that's the thing my suspicious mind would have thought yeah but they're gonna ask for some sun time or something aren't they (laughs) they're gonna do that oh another one from her i'm not a dancer which is quite a handicap when auditioning for musical theater the thing that makes me a mover instead of a dancer is my lack of coordination well that's fair enough (laughs) and the fact that i need more time to learn choreography so on one audition abroad i was happy to be invited to a movers call Before learning a combination, the choreographer said, don't worry, this isn't going to be a dance dance. Really, don't worry. I'm just going to test your coordination and learning speed. The audition turned out to be the most brutal dance call I have ever been to. (laughs) I again did not get the job. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, oh, no. It's that... It's the mover's word again. I also... I. I, I feel like it's really like it's going to become our thing. It's our bit that we do. But that story reminded me of a story I had forgotten. It's an audition <laughs> story. See, this is it. This is what I love, right? Every, t- every time we have people on the show, they're like, oh, I've got one or two to tell you. And then we read the story and they go, oh, my God, I've just remembered this. <laughs> That's yeah, what I love. of course. I love, no, I love that about what you do it's so great to like kind of be reminded of things um there's a few great stories from donna murphy that are in this fourth book that like i'm beyond excited for people to read um and uh, there's a few of them that are actually about auditions but what's really special is like i went to nyu and so did she and so uh her audition story has to do with getting a call in her dorm room which is a dorm that i also lived in about like her audition which I just like, you know, when you can make things real for the physical spaces, that's great. But um, specifically, her audition was for They're Playing Our Song, the original They're Playing Our Song. And when she was auditioning for the choreographer, Pat Birch, who's also someone I um, interviewed for my book, Pat Birch said, you know, hey, everyone in this audition room, look at this young woman. You know, Donna Murphy was... I want to say 20 at the time. Yeah, she was 20. Um, And was like, look at this young woman. All the choreography she's doing is wrong, but everything about her attitude and her face is exactly (laughs) correct. And she's emulating the part. So just look at her because she's got it wrong, but she's doing it perfectly. And Donna Murphy was like 20 and like, what what do I do with that feedback it's like you know um and and she she did end up you know getting the call in her NYU dorm room and getting the part on her birthday on her 20th birthday so um another audition story that ends really well and has some twists and turns (laughs) see the ones that end positive we're not used to those on this show Jen that's the (laughs) I'm here to spin the things to positive today apparently (laughs) well honestly when when we approached you to come on the show I just knew that this would be 
the whole other world. We have a fair few stories sent in from the Broadway community and the American side of the pond, but it's so good to hear it, they happen over there as well. So if you're listening to this and you think I've got one that I need to send in the show, then please send it in as soon as you can because we can't wait to share it with everyone, especially if they've got a really, if they're twisty and turny, but they end well. <laughs> It's like a perfect relief to my poor heart at the end of this 30, yeah. 34 episodes in. It's nice to have some that actually end with people getting the job. It's Because <laughs> it doesn't happen very much on this show. <laughs> so when you were writing this in the pandemic, are there any times that you wanted to get access to something that you couldn't get access to that will have to wait for a future installment? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I actually did do, um, you know, the interviews were actually done pre-pandemic. So the writing was done during quarantine and the editing. But, ah. um, you know, the, the interviews were pre, with the exception of like, I think three that, as you mentioned, I did have to do via Zoom slash phone um, to fill in some missing pieces of some of the chapters. But the one real thing that was like a total like curveball for us. Wow, that's like the closest I'll ever come to a sports metaphor. Um, was that... <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the one thing that was hard was that... That, um, we do at the beginning of each chapter like a recap on basically everyone who's owned the theater and theaters change hands a bunch I mean most of these theaters are like 100 years old and for the lost Broadway theaters the five lost theaters we had a pretty difficult time coming up with the entire history of like you know this person owned it from 1932 to 1940 that kind of detail um, because the New York Public Library the Museum of the City of New York um, you know the Library of Congress all these libraries are closed and they you know they're doing such a marvelous job of virtually keeping up their activities. But normally I would spend hours at the library doing tons of research for this book in a way that I couldn't do. So um, the Schubert archive, like there were a lot of places that, that were like, you know, we're just not open. Like we don't mm. have access to like all that stuff. Um, and we did have to put a note in the book that was like due to the COVID-19 shutdown, it wasn't possible to, to complete this bit of information, which has certainly never happened. But it was nice to be reminded, honestly, that like, there are things you can only find out from going to the theater the same way or like to the library the same way that like theater itself is you know you can't replicate it everything happening virtually is so awesome but like it's not literally the same as going to the theater and nothing ever could be so um it was almost like a a nice reminder to put another positive twist on something but I will say that um it's only because like myself my editor my book assistant like we know the theater so well that we were mm. able to still go oh, that person's talking about the third row of the Jacobs on the left side. And like, I know that because when I was there doing this, you know, if we didn't know the theater so well, it would have been a real horrible challenge to like not be able to go there during this. But luckily we have a lot of memories in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that, again, it just proves how deep your knowledge goes on the subject matter and how it must just get so much more expansive when you start a new volume of the book as well. Totally. I learned, I mean, I learned so much from every volume. Okay. Oh, here's a question. See, we don't normally do interview led episodes, <laughs> but I quite like this. It's special because the book is special. Thank so you. I'm not going to ask you necessarily what your favorite theater is. Cause I think that's probably like asking what your favorite child is. <laughs> You've always got one. We always, I've got one, but I've yeah. only got one child. That's why. <laughs> um, if there was one seat in a Broadway theater that you could sit in to watch every Broadway show, where would it be? That's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be democratic, but it really is like a different, you know, seat depending on the show, depending on the house, depending on the situation. Boo, but I will boo. say, it really is. I, I don't think that's like, 
you know, because all the theaters are so different, yeah. like sitting in the last row of the mezzanine and the music box is very different from sitting in the last row of the mezzanine and the Minskoff, which is very different for Lion King than it is for Fiddler. So like, it really is true. But I will say I've been thinking during the pandemic about, um, you know, I've always said my first Broadway theater that I ever saw a show in was the Eugene O'Neill where um, Book of Mormon is now, where my I saw my first Broadway show, The Full Monty. And I saw it from a student rush seat, um, you know, on house left in the front row, which is also a seat that I saw multiple shows in as a student rushing, you know, shows. Yeah you know, at NYU. And so I've been thinking a lot about um, that chapter and that theater is going to be the final chapter in my last book, which there are going to be six volumes. And like, at some point I need to just go back and see Book of Mormon from that exact seat and be like, you know, the full circle of it all. I like that. I see. I love it when there's a specific place within a theater, even if it's one theater, if it's lots of theaters, that means something just really special. It's, it's so not living in London for a huge amount of time. You know, I grew up in Cardiff. There's a specific seat in the Wales Millennium Centre, which is my local, like, well, one of my two local theatres back home, which is beautiful. Um, it's a gorgeous modern opera house, obviously, that does lots of big tours as well. But there's one specific seat in there that it was the last show that I watched. I think it was Jerry Springer. It was the last show that I watched before I went to train and moved up to London. And I just remember sitting there going, oh, the next time I potentially watch something, I could be like part of that world now. Not Little Mermaid. Um, and then weirdly, the next time after I trained, I went back to that venue, was performing on the stage as a professional. So I didn't. I love that. And I And I just and I remembered kind of looking out going the last time I was in this building, I was sat there and now I'm on here. And that was that was pretty cool. I love that. That's so great. Um, wait, do you have, as an audience member, do you have like a specific spot that you usually like other than that, like a specific theater spot? It's, oh, it's so strange. I, I like the rear stalls, but I'm not a huge fan of, there's quite a few West End theaters where the sound could be quite compromised because of the overhang. Um, so I, I don't like to be too close, although I did go through a time of, like the student rush, the lottery seats, uh, the ten pounds as it used to be, going mm -hmm. up to fifteen pounds now, probably about eighty pounds. Uh, <laughs> the like the front row where your neck hurts, you're looking up at the ceiling. I love it. I just want my neck to hurt. That's all. Yeah, I want. like the the twenty what they were twenty pound Jersey Boys front row tickets at the Prince Edward. Is it Prince Edward Prince Wales? I always get them confused. Uh, where eighty percent of the show you're seeing the actual stage, and then you can just see the. <laughs> It's not the four seasons. It's more like the eight ankles. But, it, you know, it's just about that. I like that. But, yeah, I like kind of mid, maybe mid to back stores, just just where the overhang comes in from the yeah. the thing. However, one of my one of my favorite places to sit was um, we. So one of the only times I've ever queued overnight was to see Jerusalem with Mark Rylance, um, which is was meant to come back this year whether it will come back eventually or not i don't know anymore but i queued up, i knew I, I didn't know anything about the play i didn't know what it was about and i like that whenever there's a new work and i know i've got an opportunity to see it i don't listen to the soundtrack i don't read the script i don't really read much about what it's about i just go right i know i need to see that i am the exact same way and i love hearing you say that because so few people are like that but i am the exact same i can't if like the first time granted we've got a little baby now 
So we theatres out the window whether there was a pandemic or not. <laughs> but the first time that I listened to Hamilton was watching it in full on Disney Plus because I just didn't want to make my connections with the music until I'd seen it all in context and all with the visuals, just how it was designed. That's just how I work. So with Jerusalem, I didn't know what it was about, anything about it. And obviously a key point in Jerusalem is that it's set on St. George's Day, uh, which I think I'm Welsh, so I don't know. So don't at me. Is the 23rd of March, I think. So it was the 22nd of March that I queued up on the late at night and I had no idea. I, I lived about an hour away from central London, straight on a train, queued up overnight and I hadn't been paid yet. And I knew that I got paid at midnight into the next morning. So technically I couldn't afford the ticket and I was ca- <laughs> counting people in. I knew they had two shows because it was a, a Saturday. Counting people in. Counting. About half past two in the morning, you know, we befriended the people in the queue, sleeping bags, coffee and everything. This this gaggle of people walked down Shaftesbury Avenue and it was the writer and the cast and the director and everyone after their what was going to be their last night party, absolutely hammered and a lovely bunch of people. And they stopped and thanked every single one of us in the queue for queuing overnight to see their show. That was pretty cool. And at this time I, I was like that. young theatre student, like, oh, my God, feed me the theatre. Um, <laughs> I managed to get the last two tickets for the St. George's Day evening performance, which obviously I didn't know about for me and Jess, for a tenner each. And they were in the highest kind of pocket balcony above the stage where I was pretty much on top of the stage at that point. But it was connected to the overnight queuing and that. That sitting in that seat, it may have been the worst view in the West End, but that now feels like my favourite time I've ever sat in a theatre because there was just so much connected to it. Again, I'm not English, so I didn't notice St. George's Day. And even when I think I was watching the show, I don't think I clicked. Yeah. Until Mark Rylance came out at the end of the show and gave this beautiful speech. Um obviously it's quite a you know a hugely thrilling play. It's quite a it's a real journey if you've never read Jerusalem. It's fantastic. But yeah, it was just that I remember that time is one of the times where I was like I was meant to be in that seat. I was meant to watch the show from here because this feels... I don't think I would have had the same experience if I just got somewhere in the dress circle, you know? But yeah. Totally. But that's like one of the other really magical things about theater. It's like why I love that I don't think there are any bad shows. I just think there's shows that you love and shows that someone else loves, which is like me paraphrasing my good friend, Nick Blameyer. But um, it's, you know, you might've had an amazing experience sitting in the last row where someone else didn't, or you might've loved a show and like someone else, you know, thought it was like terrible. It's, it's all individual perspectives. Mm. And you can have like an incredible experience where like you met the cast while you were waiting in line to buy tickets and that impacted your night. Like there's so many, it's just a personal individual like in-person thing like I don't know it's just I've thought so much that nothing can replicate it during this time you know we're all sitting in our living rooms watching a movie and it's a great movie but we're all basically having the same experience and at the theater every night is different every performance is different yeah. oh my god an understudy is on oh my god someone's making their debut in the orchestra pit like it's there's so much that goes into it that makes it individual one of my favorite things about and certainly with musicals where there's maybe a bit more movement with what I'm about to say is I quite like sitting towards the back and certainly actually the very, very back row, right in the middle of the top level, whatever it is, because I can see everyone else reacting to the theater. Maybe that's the director in my head working (laughs) overtime. I don't know. But I, especially if it's a show that I know and I just want to watch the show that I've maybe seen a few, say it was Wicked or something. And I've seen it. I dread to think how many times I've seen Wicked. It's a lot. Um, Is Although my first time was Christy Cates in Chicago was my first elf but I, I remember that. 
Uh, and then I saw the show with an English accent. I was like, this feels strange. <laughs> I love watching a show that I've seen a few times so that I can just see everyone else's reaction. That totally, to me, me forms too. another part of theatre. And you just don't get that when you're watching it on a screen at home, which great. You can pause it if you need a wee. That's very useful. <laughs> but I'm getting old. But you d- you don't get the same. Have you watched Absolutely. many recorded theatre things in this last year? You know, I haven't. There's so many great ones, but exactly what you said. It's like, I miss the audience, you know, like I, even if it doesn't even matter what the show is, like I almost prefer to watch the ones that had a live audience when they were recorded. Cause it's just like, yeah. I would be enjoying different content on my screen if we were also having live theater. Like it's almost what I'm watching is led by the fact that we're missing live theater. Um, it's very weird, but I will also say, um, oh, what did you remind me of? Oh, you reminded me of two things. First of all, there's a story in my book. That's great. That's about Elizabeth Ashley, the morning after the original barefoot in the park opened, um, watching Neil Simon and Mike Nichols to legends. Um, give bagels and coffee to everyone waiting in line to buy tickets which oh, I, I like, just that. like that's one of my favorite I like that. favorite stories like that um and i forget what the other thing is that you reminded me of but yeah no i miss audiences i'm oh oh this is the thing is like um basically like where you're sitting in the theater like seeing what's going on um i didn't realize until my first professional job in theater which was assisting on the musical title of show on broadway at the lyceum it really is like oh you're in the third row of the mezzanine and um you can hear the sound differently than in the fifth row of the mezzanine you know people do not realize how hard designers and especially sound designers work to make sure that every part of the theater is having like a superior experience and sound design is so it's just so much more than what people think but so is scenic design so is every lighting design like it's all part of it and when you're working on a show and you're like oh I'm watching today from you know this spot and today from that spot you realize just how much work the designers do um again to just make it good all around I love a show that really makes you feel like you aren't just sat watching it it's everywhere it's all around you there was a play um called Ghost Stories um which did a really good run and I ended up working on the marketing kind of promotion side of it so i got to see it a lot anyway but i went to see it out of choice because i just loved as a as a whole thing uh it was just a, an experience and design came into that there because there were smells involved every single detail of as soon as you started walking down the steps inside the auditorium you were in the play to start with whether you knew that or not until you left the theater was different but it's just yeah sound is such an important thing obviously if you if you're you know if if you can if when theater comes back you can think of that a bit more you're gonna go wow yeah yeah and and i think only since working with sound whether it's a podcast or recording music or whatever i now have much more respect (laughs) than i think as a youth maybe i did because it's so difficult as well I interviewed for this book for um, about Bandstand, but about all these shows that he's worked on, Nevin Steinberg, who's one of my favorite uh, sound designers. And he talked about um, specifically for Bandstand, which is like what I'm thinking about, um, making the sound of a train and how much research he did into like Bandstand is a period piece. So like, Mm. what did trains sound like in this era? And why would it have sounded like that if it was coming from that direction? And, you know, making that all into an experience for someone who's watching a musical where the train takes two seconds of the time that, you know, you're watching this production. It's like, yeah, the amount that sound designers does do, I'm like in awe of them. Yeah, if you had the Hogwarts Express going past, I don't think it would be quite as effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or he talks about like offstage crashes and like if it's a comedic crash, it's different than if it's like a serious crash where you think someone got hurt. Just like people think it's turning on and off mics and it's not that at all. Oh, so God, many no. 
Hi, it's Christopher here. Just a reminder to say that if you're listening and you know that you've got an audition tale that you'd love to share with the podcast, remember they are all anonymous, then please make sure you email it to us. We are at don'tcalluspod at gmail.com. You can find that email address in the episode notes, the show notes on your podcast provider, or you can slide into our DMs. We are at don'tcalluspod on Instagram or Twitter. Now back to the show with Jennifer Ashley Tepper. So are there any more stories that stand out from your book that you think would entice people to find out more about the Broadway, the untold stories of Broadway? Yeah, you know, in honor of our chat, I thought of two other audition stories that I love from the fourth book that um, sneak peek. Um, one of them is from Don Scardino, the great um, stage actor and director. Um, you might know him as the director of like TV shows like 30 Rock, but in back in the day, he was also like one of the premier leading men on Broadway. Um, he had a great story about an audition he went to in the 70s for the original Pippin, like the original cast, the original production of Pippin at the Imperial, um, and that he was like really nervous and he went downstairs to like the basement bathroom to go to the bathroom um and as he was peeing he looks over and he sees bob fossey peeing next to him bob freaking fossey um who obviously you know directed pippin and bob fossey has like his signature cigarette dangling from his lip and he's just like peeing um and don scardino's like oh my god i'm about to audition for you and bob fossey turns to him and says well i hope it's longer than this pee and he zips up and leaves the bathroom (laughs) and just like imagine being a young person about to audition and you're like what just happened um so and again this goes into our bit that we've been doing but don scardino then auditions um it goes well he auditions for uh not just bob fossey but Stephen Schwartz as well. And um, he gets the understudy. So John Rubenstein was the original Pippin and Don Scardino was offered the understudy. And he like agonized over it. And he was like, I'm just, I don't think I can take the understudy. I'm going to keep auditioning and try to get like a part in a show. Um, And a few weeks later, Stephen Schwartz called and was like, "Um, we're losing our current Jesus in the original, you know, run of Godspell. Will you come and be Jesus? Because I really wanted you to be the Pippin understudy. So um, that's how Don Scardino ended up playing Jesus in Godspell because he peed next to about Fossey during his Pippin audition. Come on. Come on. <laughs> this is this is this is the best episode I've ever done. I love it. <laughs> this is great. I love it. It's just it is those it's those moments again that you just think they're never gonna happen. Well clearly they do. Clearly they yeah. do. And he you know yeah. saying no to a job is bold. Especially when you've peed next to the choreographer. Because <laughs> he's got he's got dirt on you. That's all I'm saying. Yes, definitely. And doesn't that just make you want to like go see a show at the Imperial and go to the bathroom? Because you're like, look at all this history that happened in this bathroom. That is not the only story that I heard about that audience bathroom at the Imperial, by the way. That chapter Uh-oh. is full of them. Um, uh, <laughs> um, actually, what was so funny was like, there's a story from Tim Federley, incredible author, showrunner of High School Musical, the series, like, actor but tim federley told me a story about how during billy elliott he was one of the um you know he helped the kids in the show and the team that was like the dance captain the associate choreographer him all these other people their office was literally in that bathroom because as you know from like west end theaters are the same way broadway theaters are so crowded you know you take the space <laughs> where you can get it so every intermission of billy elliott people would be like why are you cutting the line and he would have to be like no our office is in this bathroom um and when he told me that i was like oh the, the bathroom where bob fossey 
pee next to Dr. <laughs> Dino. It's like all the history that you don't think you need to know about bathrooms. But um, the other audition story, the last one that I thought of is, um, I'll just give a little tidbit of this one. It's actually one of my favorite stories from the book <sighs> ever. But um, Eric William Morris, who's a good friend of mine, actually, who was in Corum Boy and Mamma Mia on oh, Broadway. What um, a show Corum Boy is, by the way. Sorry yes. to interrupt. I that saw is... it and I saw it in London. Yeah. Did you see it at the Olivier? I oh, did. Just it is one of my most visceral memories of the theatre. Is oh, that's another one I saw at the very back row in the middle as well, and it is just it, the most epic thing I have ever seen. You yes. can take your warhorse; it's a good show. I love warhorse, <laughs> but Coram Boy was insane when the sales are oh, brilliant amazing sorry carry on it's jen funny, my no, fault it's, it's funny you should say that no that's totally relevant because i loved it and you know in london and um it was so incredible and it was not very it was under it was misunderstood in america it did not run very long on broadway it closed really quickly even though it was such a, a huge hit in london so um you know that's part of the story but eric Lloyd morris who um you know starred in those he was in those broadway shows his day job when he was not on broadway um was he actually worked as a janitor at circle in the square and so at circle in the square was where spelling bee was and for those who know 25th annual putnam county spelling bee there's a song where one of the characters throws candy into the audience repeatedly <laughs> so um whenever eric william morris was not on broadway he was literally like picking gumdrops out of the seats at circle in the square <laughs> and both of those i know it's crazy both of those broadway shows um when he got cast in them um he didn't want to put out the people at circle in the square who were counting on him to do his janitor job. So he would rehearse for Broadway during the day and then eventually do Broadway shows at night while he was still being a janitor at another Broadway theater, which is just like his stories about that in this book. And then in um, the theater where the volume where I do the winter garden are really, really incredible, including, you know, now he's like, he's done a ton of TV. He's like a well-known actor. And at one point, Celia Keenan-Bolger from the original cast of Spelling Bee was doing a show with him and was like, wait, have we met before? Like, don't I know you? And he had to be like, you know, I used to empty your garbage and clean the candy. Out oh, of my Which is like, I, it's a beautiful story. Like, it's one of my favorite things, like learning that, you know, Aaron Sorkin wrote A Few Good Men on napkins while he was bartending at the palace during like the <laughs> cash. It's like so many people, their day jobs are like selling water in a Broadway theater that they live end up starting yeah. and it's like it's all part of it and like you know there are so there's so much of that yeah well how i mean how many ushers at theaters all around the globe are still actively auditioning to go and replace the cast that they watch every night and sit there going i can sing that better totally well it's also like i when i was writing the saint james chapter of my book it's like i learned that lauren bacall was once an usher at the saint james and um one of the like theater before she was the great lauren bacall um and one of the critics was so taken with her that he like literally was like there's a very attractive blonde usher who works at this theater on house right um <laughs> yeah it's there's tons of that um tons of people start out or just continue to do all kinds of different jobs in the theater We've all, we've all got to keep working. We've all yeah. got to keep working. I've never I've never been an usher at a theatre. I was an usher at a cinema. Mm -hmm. I worked at a cinema um, for too long. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. I but I still had people coming in in their days. I'd still see directors and uh, film actors coming to see their films, buying tickets for their own film. What are you doing? I know <laughs> it's a bit I of narcissism. That. I love it. <laughs> So I have one more story for you, and it's a lovely example, um, telling this to a Broadway producer, <laughs> um, that of a story where somebody maybe had a little bit um, bad behaviour, shall we say. Oh dear. She says, I hope you enjoy this fun little story of my first ever audition as a graduate. 
I love the show. It's so funny and it humanizes a very stressful part of our stagey lives. So thank you. Well, that's very kind. (laughs) I'd just signed with my agent. It was the eve of my college graduation ball. I had my hair looking just right and the full shebang painted on my face. And despite knowing that I had an open Mamma Mia audition for a cruise the next morning, I somehow decided it would be a great idea to attend the after party until gone 3 (laughs) a.m. Oh, dear. It's not going to end well. I (laughs) know. With just two hours sleep, I made my way to queue outside an ungodly hour with my same grad ball hairstyle falling off my head. My now ancient makeup smudged and faded to hell and still very, very tipsy. (laughs) I do not know how I did it. In fact, I hardly remember it at all. Somehow, for all four of the dance rounds, I feel like I had never danced better. Well, you do when you're tipsy, don't you? Even if I was swaying at the side of the room when it wasn't my turn, I was somehow surviving each and every cut until it came to the singing. I didn't expect to get this far, so I had to run to a nearby H&M to buy a horrendously clashing white and off-white outfit with wedge heel shoes that definitely didn't fit. I walked into the audition room with pop song in hand and paracetamol coursing through my veins, and before I knew it, I belted out the first note of my song. Seven notes too low. (laughs) To say I was out of tune was an absolute understatement. I sounded like a father of four at the local pub karaoke night, and it just kept getting worse with each word that slurred its way out of my mouth. Horrified, I asked to start again, and actually remembered to move my larynx this time, as the choreographer looked over, giving me sympathetic looks, assuming it was just nerves. No, hun, I'm seeing three of you. Again, somehow they loved it and asked me to come back on Wednesday. (laughs) Great, I thought, at least then I'll be sober. Fast forward to Wednesday, I got cut the first round. I'm not sure what the takeaway is from the story, and I think it's best not to go searching for one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, fair. Clearly, you need to go to every audition absolutely hammered because that's that's clearly a bonus. It's (laughs) it's not from my book, but that story does remind me of I recently read Bob Avian's book, the late great Bob Avian, who we lost just about a month ago, who was part of the original team of like creating a chorus line and all these other shows. And um, something that's in his book and in Michael Bennett's books that I think is interesting is like when they were doing ballroom, um, there was one actor that was not used to dancing. And in order to make like the lead actor, in order to make him more comfortable they would like at, after rehearsal give him a drink and set up the rehearsal room as though it was just like a club and that's how they kind of like got him into the role was by like pretending it was just like you know being a little tipsy at, at the club wow. um i don't think vincent gardenia the club but um <laughs> but I, I i think that that's like you know substance has its place there's also i've definitely got some stories in my books about folks who got a little too drunk got a little oh, yeah. too high oh, yeah. and then um and then you know we're not supposed to be on stage and got put on stage in a role you know that's always a fun journey that <laughs> thrilled to hear about <laughs> an, an all too familiar one from the, the doors of the west end and broadway i am yeah. i'm sure <laughs> uh, before we let any of our guests uh, go we always ask them and this is going to be really interesting coming from you what your audition addition would be but because you are the other side of the table predominantly we always ask you if there's one step that you could take away from auditions that you just think could just get rid of it to help the process move quicker and easier and more enjoyable for everyone, what would be the thing that you would take away from auditions? You know, that's a great question. And 
I wish I had like a brilliant answer that came immediately to mind. But in my experience being in auditions, I feel like at this point, like we kind of have trimmed the fat. Like I, I feel like, you know, I, I do feel like in New York, at least my experience, like people don't get called in unless someone feels like they really want to see them for the part. Um, yeah. Normally, and I do, so I guess that's my answer. But like, I don't think it was always the case, at least in my experience of like, you know, so often you're like, oh God, this poor actor had to prepare all this material and they're not even right for it. But in the world where like half of the time really excited by an audition and hold them for another project I think like I don't feel bad that they prepared you know because it's like they could get a different opportunity out of it and it's also like I think less and less do people get called in willy-nilly so I think it's gotten better which is another positive spin for me today apparently I'm feeling the positive vibes this is a very positive <laughs> episode doesn't know it's not normally this yeah. positive <laughs> And let me tell you, like, I've been as, like, depressed as anyone during quarantine, but some days you're just like, I'm, I'm on the up and up. <laughs> <laughs> that was this week's episode of Don't Call Us, We'll Call You with All The Way From Broadway, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. An absolute joy to have Jen on the show this week, and that won't be the last time you hear from her because we've had such a joy. We'll get her on. She's got an incredibly encyclopedic knowledge of Broadway, and I can't wait for you all to read her book. That's The Untold Stories of Broadway, Volume 4, out on March the 9th, released by Dress Circle Publishing. So if you want to follow the episode uh, notes on this episode here today, follow your way to Jen's Twitter, and you can find a link to buy the book there. It's available from all good book retailers, I am sure. Thank you for listening. If this is your first show, then I hope you've had a good time with us. There's plenty more to get your teeth into. There's 33 episodes out already with stars from the West End, international stand-up comedians, writers, casting directors, and many, many more people. So dive in, find episodes that you know the names, find those you don't, and enjoy the show. And make sure you tag us on social media and share the show to a friend. You can review us on your podcast platform of choice or head to podchaser.com forward slash don't call us pod to review us there. Thank you very much for listening. Next week, we've got another Broadway episode for you. So if you enjoyed Ratatouille, the TikTok musical, or you are a Book of Mormon on Broadway fan, you're going to love our Broadway guest next week. But no spoilers. Although, if you do follow us on social media, you'll know exactly who it is. <laughs> Have a good week. Make sure you subscribe and catch up on the episodes you haven't listened to yet. And we will see you next Friday for another episode of the show. So keep safe, wash your hands, wear your mask, and remember... Don't call us. We'll call you. Good night, everyone. Good night. So you might be listening to the morning. It's a long. I've just have had a long week. See you soon, everyone. If you've enjoyed this week's episode of Don't Call Us, We'll Call You, then please rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It helps people find us who've never heard us before. Also, you can find us and review us at podchaser.com forward slash don't call us pod. If you want to buy us a digital coffee, that's very kind of you. And it all goes towards making the show better. And you can buy us a coffee at coffee.com forward slash don't call us pod. That's ko-fi.com forward slash don't call us pod. See you next week.